Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Charlie George, who I spoke with in my flat in London about all sorts of things from dance, uh, disability, bodies, um, sex education, love, um, the industrial schools complex um, and cultural appropriation, as well as sort of mindfulness and meditation stuff. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. I really enjoyed having the conversation with Charlie and uh, she had a soy latte, which I disapprove of heartily, but we had such a great conversation that it doesn't really matter. Um, I will be in Melbourne. (laughs) So I plan to be in Melbourne on the 26th of March for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival with my new show, Kronos. That is the plan. So far they have not cancelled. I'm hearing rumours that they might postpone. So um, maybe don't buy tickets. I mean, of course, do buy tickets, but don't necessarily buy tickets. If we can't do the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, I will do my best to provide an alternative, whether it's doing the show online every night, live, via Twitch, or some other thing. I hope that you um, won't have to miss out on me assuming that you want to come and see me. Uh, So it would ideally be Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, uh, and then London and Edinburgh, and then my tour in the UK in November. It all sort of depends on this coronavirus stuff, which seems to be uh, taking off. And of course, you know, we all have friends who are older than us or relatives who are in that kind of danger bracket for the age, and this is looking like a big pandemic. Of course, I will continue to do my podcasts, Tea with Alice, The Last Post, The Bugle When It Comes Up, and my Audible documentaries. Um, So you can still get things of mine online and from your own home, even if you're in isolation. The Alice Fraser trilogy is still available for free in its fullness, and Savage, which is the first in the trilogy, will be coming out as a filmed television, quote-unquote television special on Amazon Prime on the 19th of April. So... That will also be available for you and you won't have to be anywhere near other people or dangerous um, virus germs in order to access that. So that's enough plugging. I will let you get on with listening to the podcast. Thank you so much to all of my patrons. Um, You make it possible for me to do what I do and particularly in this period of time where shows are being cancelled and where you know, all of the people and performers in this industry are facing the prospect of, you know, a month without this income that some of us rely on for the rest of the year. Having you as my support base gives me a kind of security that so few other people have. It is such an incredible thing. It means that I can do uh, the kind of work that I'm interested in because you're interested in it, because you support it. And I love getting your messages. I love getting your emails, alicerfraser at gmail.com. As always, tweets at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. And uh, also on Instagram, the same thing. If you ever want to contact me, I love hearing from you. Um, It's such a delight. And I'm going to stop blithering and let you listen to the podcast. Thank you. You're having tea with Alice, and I will talk to you again next week. Hi. It's Alice again. Uh, This is just a quick interruption and addition to the podcast to say uh, this obviously uh, was recorded before the Melbourne International Comedy Festival was cancelled. So if you uh, don't buy tickets to that, it's been cancelled. I don't know what's going to be happening with the Perth International Comedy Festival 
or the Sydney Comedy Festival, they are looking likely to be cancelled unless there's some sort of massive shift in the trajectory of the virus, the coronavirus. Uh, Social distancing looks like it's the way to go, quarantining, all of that. As long as, unless, you know, as long as this keeps sort of being the sensible thing to do, obviously I'm not going to suggest that you go see live comedy. Um, What you can do if you like comedians is support them via their online resources. Plenty of people have shows on sale. Plenty of people have Patreons um, or Kofis or various other things that you can just give them money or also they usually have merch on sale or shows uh, that are for sale that you can um, get some value for your money. And if you are self-quarantining, it's not a bad thing to have a lot of comedy available to you. Um, If you don't have money to spend, I have a trilogy online, um, which is the Alice Fraser trilogy. That's a podcast that's free. Uh, And the last post, I think we're up to about 75 episodes. That's also free. Tea with Alice, of course, hundreds of episodes also free. Uh, Plenty of brilliant podcasts around, including my brother's The Man Mum podcast, but also other ones that are funny and worth listening to. So if you are stressed out, email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. I care. (laughs) Or tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. Instagram the same, patreon.com slash alicefraser. I will always try and respond to your messages there. Um, even if it's a bit overwhelming on to try and cover all messages on all forums, I do I do like hearing from you, so that's good. I'll talk to you again next week. You're having tea with Alice. So, who are you and what are you drinking? <laughs> I am Charlie George. Um, do I have to say a bit about myself, should I say? I mean, you can feel free to contextualize that I think you know people, yeah. people telling you who they are tells you a lot about who they are <laughs> <laughs> I'm Charlie George what am I I am a, a, a queer mixed race lady and um, I am drinking it's a soy latte from Gales and it's got um, unpasteurized honey and cinnamon in it Oh, unpasteurised honey. Is yeah. there something better about unpasteurised honey? I don't know. I just noticed it on the label. But it's probably the most bougie thing I've put into anything. But I just, <laughs> I just really like that struck with me. I was like, I had no idea that honey was pasteurised or unpasteurised. So maybe yeah, it's pure in its purer form. Yeah, I think there was a Silicon Valley phase for unpasteurised water. Or sort of untreated water, raw water, what they were calling raw water, as part of that kind of paleo phase, and some people got quite sick from that. That's delightful. Yeah. I love it. It's just like that's this just like attacks all of those fats, doesn't it? Of like the raw and all of these kind of things. I have like I normally have this kind of like uh, forest honey that's meant to be really good. Yeah, I, oh look, I'm a big fan of crazy honey. <laughs> I don't. It, the, the, it's super interesting. I think people don't understand statistics when it comes to things like unpasteurized cheese or unpasteurized honey or unpasteurized milk mm-hmm. or whatever which is that overall if you're a healthy person you're more likely you're fine you're usually going to be fine yeah but overall the risk is a certain percentage that there'll be a disease or whatever and so we as a society choose to take that risk in order to prevent the much like the risk of lower nutrition or whatever it is 
in order to prevent... I just think it's such a funny thing because now I live in London, like, I think about those things and I've been, like, on, like, like a dancer and, and a physical person with my body, but I realise how strange it is to the general population when I go back to, like family or where I grew up and it's like a super working class environment and it's like you just eat food like you don't really think about like like I'm so annoying when I go out with my sister and I go home and I'm just like so could you tell me what's in there like like people don't know what's in things and they're just eating them and I find that insane but then for other people it's like it's actually probably a really healthy attitude to have to some degree like of like not obsessing over what's in it or what it might do to you or all this kind of stuff but I do think that like yeah if you're more conscious it becomes um, it becomes really hard to go back and have. Uh... But I was raised on like Scotch egg, Scotch eggs in packets of crisps as dinner when we couldn't have anything else. <laughs> it's like not like. So now I think I've gone quite extremely the other way, where I'm just sort of like trying to pay more attention to like what's in stuff and being healthy and nutrition. And I love all the like little wine tales. I think that's why I'm into honey in particular because when you're told that like you know really good pure honey will stop you from getting things i think it appeals to my inner hypochondriac that's just like i'm pre- i'm protecting myself well i mean honey is really good like <laughs> yeah. you know putting it on a wound so it doesn't get infected is a legit thing that they do in hospitals mm. it's mm. it's a it's a good thing i think probably the amount of like minerals and vitamins in a spoonful of honey versus a spoonful of white sugar are negligible but then again if you have the luxury if you have the money why wouldn't you take those extra tiny little vitamins and minerals or whatever they happen to be. I don't know. I don't know. I've kind of, you know, I've gone through, like, very exercise phases and very non-exercise phases in my life, and it's interesting to see, like, particularly in the UK, it's not as common a thing as it is in Australia or certainly in Sydney, where I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. It is a little bit body beautiful. So for me, like, at the moment I'm struggling with it because I'm trying to write jokes about going to the gym, yeah, and you're going in front of a UK audience, and they're like, "Ugh, who goes to the gym?" Yeah, yeah, it's already considered quite like a a shitty thing. But then people do though. I used to be a personal trainer as well, and I find it like it's so fascinating because those people were some of the most like they these like beautiful bodies you've ever seen in your life. Like it's insane Adonises that were afraid to show you their abs because they'd eaten something that day. Like the level of insecurity and insanity and like little alarm bells going off and eating every three hours. It was really crazy. And after a while, I realised like from talking to some of the people like how unsustainable the very extreme kind of body beautiful stuff is but what the roots of it were coming from. And now I'm just convinced that everybody in the gym is, like, is, is, is like just preventing themselves from, from, from harming themselves and other people. It's just, like, a way of, like... <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's, like, a preventative prison now where it's just kind of, like, Ooh. you get out your rage or your aggressions at other stuff. And, like, the architecture of the body becomes the architecture of a very sort of... <laughs> I think certainly for some people, well, like, you know, you so watch someone like Dwayne The Rock Johnson and you think there is a man who is very admirably coping with depression (laughs) or something but for me you know I think it's at various times it's kind of been pathological I grew up with a sick Mm mum and so being knowing that I'm looking after my body is like is a mental health thing as well as anything else it's feeling like you have power over your health in a world where you feel helpless to deal with a lot of things but at the same time, it is actually true when I'm fit, when I can go up a set of stairs, when I know the edges of my body, when I know the limits of my capacity, I feel stronger and more confident. I am less likely to get sick. I, yeah. You know, I, as well as the kind of, you know, feeling good about yourself. Like, it doesn't, it's not 
a matter of weight even because you can go to the gym and have better body image as a result of going to the gym once. Yeah, yeah. Which is not to do with how you look at all. It's how to do with. It's got to do with how you feel about how you look. Yeah, I've always found it's tricky because I come from like a dance and circus background to kind of to get that level that is like that is a healthy that is that healthy place that is that like because it's a beautiful thing to take care of yourself and I can totally see why British people when you talk about gym like ugh taking care of yourself gross stop showing up <laughs> like ugh it's like it's kind of like anything that could be deemed sort of like arrogance or confidence or that kind of thing I think we kind of look at it in that negative way but there's actually something really beautiful about investing well, I mean, in yourself and your health but it, when it spills into the point of like are you caring more about the external results which was kind of what I was seeing in this very extreme sort of people entering competitions or constantly critiquing their bodies from like an external aspect and constantly like hammering the outcomes of that rather than like if people were quantifying it based on I feel so much better and I can do so many more things yeah. as well like this is a thing you know, I, I'm glad that I go to the gym and lift weights because I can carry my niece yeah, quite yeah, easily, yeah. even though she's massive, you know, uh, for a baby. You know, I can have her on one arm and take her to the park. And just then I just imagine this giant niece. It's like a massive... She's, she's pretty massive. Um, um, things like that that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Or, you know, when my mum was sick, being able to help her in and out of the shower, even though she yeah, was yeah. Uh, bigger than me, yeah, yeah. taller than I was and, and larger than I am. But so. I'm fascinated by how we relate to our bodies and health, because I used to work at, um, at the hospital, and I used to work in the NHS as, like, a therapy assistant for people who were recovering from, like, brain injuries and strokes. And so one of my jobs was, like, sometimes occasionally being someone's right leg like whilst they were relearning how to walk and I would kind of like be holding onto the wrap and like moving it on the run and like the treadmill and stuff and like getting hit in the face by wheelchair parts it was really, but that one, is fascinating though but like one in of terms the things of bodies yeah in terms of bodies it was just incredible I met some of these most amazing people who were like really taught me stuff because I'd come from a very sort of critical background where like it was an external perfection thing in in ballet and contemporary dance and in stuff but so it would has a, a very kind of um aggressive critique of your own body yeah, from an this external This might just sense. be my anecdotal evidence, but I yeah. don't know anybody who has a serious ballet background that doesn't have body image issues. It's so hard. I remember doing little leg lifts when I was nine because I'd got on this talent program for dance and I was like, why do I care? And I think because I was brown and I had a different body shape and my butt used to stick out and I had bigger thighs and my teacher pointed that out, I just immediately then started to see the way that I was as flaws, you mm. know, and like and to, to correct. And I had no idea about the, the that internal experience. But I, I remember one of the patients that I was working with and she was just like fucking hilarious and I... And she'd had, like, multiple strokes quite early. I think she was about, like, 37 or something. And she leaned forward to me and she was like, oh, I've had to learn to wipe my ha- my ass with my other hand. And she always was making jokes about stuff. And I suddenly realised that, like, when you were working with these people on really sort of functional things, like, to honour the stuff that my body could do. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's people huge. fighting, like to walk again to be able to like to have the dexterity of their fingers and their hands and their stuff and like it was just incredible like to realize all of the aspects that we take for granted and focus on these really kind of like just so unimportant things like 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 the size I'm just like does it work like (laughs) does it do what it's supposed to do like is it in pain all the time yeah you know 
so that was a really kind of enlightening experience and I found that like I think I'd been kind of seeking in in some sort of ways I've been doing a lot of community dance work more and more and working with different kinds of bodies and different kinds of people and I think it was a really healing thing for what my earlier experiences were because I felt some part of me was like I can't exist in this state like it's going to destroy yeah I my mean, relationship to this art form because I was just like it, I hate it and I hate my body and everything I'm doing yeah, is wrong all about I can see is flaws thing. it was how you looked while you were doing the thing which is sort of the least important part yeah. of it except that with dance so in the same way as uh, with comedy it's very hard to uh, separate being a narcissist from being a workaholic because the product is yourself <laughs> uh, in the same way I think it's very hard to be a dancer without being very body conscious because your body is your tool so it's hard not to kind of let that desire to refine the tool become obsessive and compulsive and unhealthy yeah but I think when it comes to like to take a few steps back when it comes to like audiences and talking to them about the gym or about the exercise or about Mm. the body it's a really interesting thing I I think it comes from here's my theory interrupt me if you think I'm wrong so there's this dichotomy in in the modern world between the body and the mind as though they were two separate things or separable things as though your mind wasn't living in your body as though you know I like that Greek idea where they used to do philosophy in the morning and wrestle in the afternoon or vice versa whatever it was yeah yeah the idea so this was a thing that I sexy queer wrestling (laughs) yeah I'm up for it I'm up for it nude oiled up wrestling (laughs) yeah I'm into it but Uh, So I went to university in Australia. This is particularly strong. There's a mainstream kind of vibe that is anti-intellectual and very sporty, Mm. sport-focused even. And then as a a kind of a counterpoint to that, people who are intellectual or people who are educated tend to push themselves into, this is again broad generalisations, but they tend to push themselves into silos where they can be sneering at the lower classes or the stupid people or the anti-intellectuals as a way of defending themselves against the hatred that you feel or the sense of isolation that you feel being a brainiac in a world of people who only respect sport. But so for me, I was, when I was at university, I was in the running squad and then I was also doing sort of drama or theatre or theatre sports. And I felt so out of place in both of those things. I was sort of too soft for the runners and I was too thin for the these beautiful voluptuous theatre people who were all, you know, gorgeous and curvy. But the thing I hated the most was those people sneering at exercise or sneering at sports people or like, ugh, why would you go to the gym, these beautiful, languid people smoking cigarettes and thinking big thoughts. And, you know, I'm facing the fact that my mum is sick and thinking, you're 21, you're beautiful, you have the use of your body and you're wasting it. It made me so angry. Like, yeah. really, really angry. Like, just... I think you've touched on one of the things that I find is the... Because I've recognised this, like, recently when when been talking to other people and they're kind of, you know, you hear various sneerings all of the time and you, you have your own and I've been trying to watch it a little bit more and I'd be like, what is that about? And it probably and often we kind of sneer at the things that we feel we can't do ourselves, right? And it's our own kind of weakness, like, projected back at us. And I think there is something that's crucially happened and I've noticed it in schools and I kind of... 
you know, I did, I've done some kind of teaching assistant work and there's schools where they do kind of do integrate the skills a little bit more so that people play to their strengths and weaknesses but are a bit more well-rounded and you at least have some kind of connection to these other disciplines. I think the fundamental thing that's broken is the separation of the mind and the body and the, all of the narratives around that. Like, how many dancers say that they don't know, you know, like that I know, that say, oh, they're shit at maths so they don't know how to make money. And, and you know, and all of these kind of other elements and it's just like, and so they kind of look at economic people are people who are stable and they always feel like they're unstable compared to these other things so we do this for the things outside of ourselves but rather seeing that you know if we did integrate in our learning more and have a well-rounded thing it's like teach artists how to make like teach all children about money like straight away like that would be really helpful but also like don't separate out the subjects you know like there are schools now that I'm kind of interested in like Montessori I've been looking at these alternative cells where they teach you know teaching stuff through music yeah kind of like what you said I mean I'm pretty sure they don't have the queer sexy wrestling in school (laughs) but um (laughs) but this idea of that you would you would think about something and then maybe you'd explore it in music and then maybe you'd explore math through music or maybe you do something else like finding different ways for different types of people to access the same thing rather than just locking them out of it and saying intellectuals are terrible at sport because they can't run fast enough so what we'll do is we'll extract all the people who are really good runners and just focus on them but never have another way for the people who maybe don't want to do it to be track and field stars yeah. to still access that thing and get joy from it. Like, why do yeah, we do that? Yeah, the idea that you have to be good at something to enjoy it or that you have to be talented at something to get good at it as well. Yeah, and we're not all going to be strong in different things, but that doesn't mean we still can't access those things or that that well-roundedness would not be of benefit to us. Because I think what we then do is, because we're insecure, is we go very hard and obsessionally into the one thing that we're good at. Yeah. And then feel incompetent elsewhere. And like, <laughs> there's, a, there's a brilliant book by Stephen Fry called The Ode Less Travelled, which mm. is a, an argument basically for, being, for doing bad poetry. <laughs> Because, you know, this idea that if you want to write poetry, you have to be brilliant or think you're brilliant rather than someone who can pick up a guitar at a party and be good enough to entertain people and for people to enjoy. Like, you you don't have to think that you're the best guitarist in all the land to think you can pick up a guitar and have a nice time with your friends. So why is poetry so you know, obscure and abstract and far away. We all have access to words. Why is that not something that is more common? It's a really nice book. It's sort of almost a textbook of how to write certain forms of poetry. It's a lot of fun. I've given away, like, five copies of it because I think it's a really... That sounds great, yeah. Because, it, you know, it's not just about poetry in that way. It's about why don't we do things that we're interested in? Why don't we try them? Why don't we put ourselves out there? Like, you don't have to be an athlete to go for a walk or go for a jog. You don't have to be fit to go to the gym if you feel like you're feeling a bit claggy in your body or your brain's slowing down, you know, you've been shut in the house for a couple of days, but it's raining outside. But this is where I think the root cause of that segregation in education then has allowed us to create a narrative that breeds around the insecurities, which is like a certain type of person does that. Mm. And I think it's not just the arts. I think the arts in particular, because people are fearful of creativity and their own sense of failure in that, it's much easier to say, oh, there's geniuses and great talent than really admit that like it's just hard work and it's what you do it and you can get pleasure from it and you can not. And, you can, and people that maybe um, are not geniuses but can make money from it and do it yeah. as a thing. You know, it's just like it's way more broad than people want to admit because we, we've created this thing around it but I also feel the same about the kind of you know I sometimes feel locked out of like areas that I you know 
science stuff or wanting to understand, you know, economic, economics more or other, these other kinds of things of just like, you know, to really understand the language of things that are going on rather than feel kind of out, outside of it. But being told that because you're not very good at that or not being educated in that because that's not one of your subjects. Like, I just think we do a lot of harm in education that then we have to sort of unlearn later and change our habits to be able to kind of access those things and enjoy and and connect with them and improve our understanding of i am astonished that people don't get taught budgeting and taxation in school yeah i know if you want people to like like, (laughs) submit their return and declare like teach them how to do it properly like surely that's part of the process and it's that idea that that, your parents should teach you it's like sex ed your parents shouldn't teach you it should be then (laughs) you haven't met my parents your parents shouldn't teach me anything (laughs) it's not okay (laughs) yeah surely your parents can shape the way that you understand those things if you come back and you go oh i need some more explanation but why, and I mean, not just people who choose to study economics or whatever, but why don't we get taught tax when we're 10 years old? Why don't you get taught how to budget? Yeah. At that like when you're learning your times tables is when it should be there. Why is that less important than Pythagoras' theorem? You know, well, that one I've never understood because I just think like, well, money is the system and the structure that we're kind of we're, we're working with and we've chosen and have put so much weight and value on. I'm like, I've never understood why that one. Like, I can kind of understand more with like sex education and other stuff that people are like fearful of that, but even that needs to change. Mm. Like, because it's just kind of like. <clears throat> But it's such a difficult one because of people's different belief systems and values around kind of when that should happen and all this kind of stuff. But it's like if you actually give people more tools of, yeah, communication and understanding of, well, of so, themselves so earlier. Then, I mean, yeah. even no matter how you feel about sex itself, mm-hmm. I don't understand why PE or whatever you call it, HSIE, health studies, why whatever you call it, why that doesn't include some level of emotional education. Like, even if you think that abstinence only is the way, at some point you're going to be in love with someone who doesn't love you back. Yeah. At some point somebody's going to love you. Oh, my God, you they should have given back. us a breakup class and just taught us, like, the, the seven stages of grief, what you need to do. You just even, like, at some point someone's going to be really interested in you, you won't be interested in them, here's how to deal with it gracefully, and here's how to deal with oh it gracefully. Oh, my God. Here's something that can happen to people. You can become obsessed Do with someone. Do you know how many problems would have been solved by teaching people how to say no and not to, like, feel that they are... Yeah, and to trust their no or to, like, have some kind of sense of that because I do think the number of people that I speak to that just kind of, like, I didn't really know what to do so I kind of handled it in this, like, fucked up yeah. way or, like, stayed in this thing or whatever and it's like... And we are human and we are going to make mistakes but it's just, like, I, d- I think, like, assertion and... There's this and really, the kind of confidence uh, to do that would have been essential. So yeah. I was talking about this the other day with a friend. I, I remember picking up a book in a library um, when I was quite young and it stuck with me because it made a distinction between love and what they call limerence, which is, so the idea is, limerence is the kind of thing where you're obsessively infatuated with someone mm. and it sort of makes you less. So you often it's often characterised by things like imagining yourself dying for them or rescuing them from a situation. That yeah, kind of... Yeah. It's very obsessive. You want to take them or steal them or have them. And that is a distinct state, and it's a shorter-lived phase than something else, which is love, which is a kind of a wholesome thing which makes you feel more yourself. You know, you feel like you are improved by it or expanded by it yeah. rather than shrunk down purely to the object of your focus. 
but just even knowing that there is a difference between those two states. Oh my god, yeah. Why? That has, <laughs> that has nothing to do with sex. That is not yeah, controversial. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. a thing that I think is worth twelve-year-olds knowing. Yeah, like it's totally. Not, and discussing and thinking about and then maybe having wrestling. No, no, stop with the wrestling. <laughs> but like I. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's enough to blame it all on education because maybe there is some part of just like, you know, we have to figure these things out. And I I have been realising more recently, it's just like, you know, when my parents had even like less knowledge than this or more kind of disruptive or confusing knowledge. And it's just like, is this the process? You know, I'm starting to sort of come to a point of acceptance of just kind of like, is it kind of just this tidal thing of like moving forwards and moving back and then having to figure it out and then kind of gleaning it from all of these other kinds of spaces? Because I think realistically you know inheriting um a system and a structure where it's like well you know there are these alternative education models if you can access them for certain yeah. types of kids with school paying fees you can access a different kind of education that probably would debate more and ask you stuff i mean you only have to look at like some people that you that i've met and experienced in the arts who've had alternative kinds of education and they are not riddled with the same levels of self-doubt because they've been told that they can succeed i come from a really different levels of self-doubt yeah, yeah different Diff- levels of self-doubt in different areas yeah but like there's already something about kind of believing in your capabilities that's educated in that setting versus kind of you know do you want to be a receptionist or pregnant in in another school comprehensive setting where it's like most people who go to this school just end up a truck driver like so just just lower it down and don't you know um, it's what you think about what the function of school is. You know, schools emerged out of the Industrial Revolution so as somewhere jobs. to store yeah. children while the parents worked in factories. Yeah. And that was an improvement on having the children working in the factories. Yeah, and I am deeply grateful <laughs> to my ancestors for the progression that has been made because I'm, I just don't think I could have coped in a poor house, basically. Like, it's been tough, but in a very different way compared to that. Do you know what I mean? And, like, so... Yeah, I think it's still got a long way to go. And I do sometimes find it a bit embarrassing in the UK because, like, we do have neighbouring countries whose education systems are just way more, like, ahead of us and have chosen to be free and therefore liberated people from kind of being in massive amounts of debt for getting an education. And we could choose to do that, I think, but we choose not to. And I've always wondered, like, why, why do we just make it harder? Yeah. <laughs> and then also when, you're, when your history teacher is just sort of hiding in a cupboard crying, you think, like, is this... <laughs> is, like, is this how it's meant to be you know like but I do think you know there is something exciting about kind of educating yourself and empowering yourself to kind of find these things out and that kind of stuff as well and not just placing the responsibility in one area because school will have some failings and your parents will have some failings and there's a point where you take autonomy and responsibility to find out and discover that but I guess it's what what you're equipped with well, to be yeah. able to do that. And then as a function of your education being taught or at some point someone has to teach you that you can learn. Like that's the fundamental thing that needs to be done is that someone has to teach you at some point in your life yeah. that here is here are resources, you can access them, you have the capacity to learn. Ideally, they'll encourage you in that capacity. Yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of people kind of, depending on the environment they grew up with, are actively discouraged from being curious or learning 
Yeah, it's about working and it's about surviving or providing or, like, I do think... Not being a problem, just not causing a problem. Yeah, even friends of mine who have come from these more sort of secure backgrounds, I suppose, in some ways, have huge agony over, like, living up to expectations of their parents who have super high-powered careers. Or if you come from a certain school, right, like, you can't fail. <laughs> like, yeah. you can't fail and fuck it up. You can't, how do you change your mind if you've gone to, like, Cambridge or Oxford? You know, you're expected to just be brilliant like yeah. and where are the moments for you to have those bits of your 20s where you're like sort of just being a bit of a dickhead for a bit and not really <laughs> knowing what I'm doing and making mistakes and so I think it, it works from all those kind of sides and I do think um there's some really good stuff that's exciting me that's changing that I'm hearing about so like having meditation in schools like that's kind of growing these kind of mind up programs where kids are doing that you know they're bringing in different more sort of physical elements and trying to integrate in some ways as best they can maybe in a way that the western model can kind of like digest but they are kind of doing that stuff and it's having like a huge impact on young people and I I also think because of the way information and social media and stuff is changing there will be more access to different ways of kind of finding out information and researching the things that you want but yes the teaching of the learning but there was this cool organization that I discovered and they um uh they are doing work with kids where they kind of have like a fake spy agency and it's for like really young kids and they're getting them to do critical thinking oh that's they're called bright little labs and I think they just sound amazing and I remember talking to them because they um their little animated superhero is a British Asian girl which I also think is super cool because I didn't have any mixed race heroes growing up so it was just really nice um and they're kind of working on these kind of models and these videos and tools for getting young people to start to look at the sources of their information you know what do, why would this person be telling me this yeah, and are is they lying to this? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah and so I find that's really exciting because that then is teaching us skills for the world in which we're in now right so which I mean which sort of brings me back to what you're talking about meditation in schools brings me back to the mind body disjunct because this is one of the the benefits I think that is not spoken about about exercise and meditation I guess as a as an adjunct like one of the most important things I think for people to understand about themselves is that they are not as in control of their minds as they think they are yeah and it's not until you try to meditate or you try some sort of mental discipline or whether it's working at something you don't enjoy or whether it's turning your attention to something that's difficult or whether it's trying to refine your attention in meditation, whatever it is, yeah. most of the time you're carried around by your mind in a completely uncontrolled way. Yeah. And I think exercising, if nothing else, even if there were no physical benefits to exercise... <laughs> It, which sometimes it feels like they're on. Yeah. If you're running, yeah, yeah. it's just like, ow, But ow. It's, it's practice for doing something and improving at the thing. It's yes. practice for doing something that might be difficult or unpleasant or whatever it is, and then being able to overcome that very small obstacle is training for your mind as well. But so also, that, this is why I think really cerebral people can still get to a certain age and start doing tough mudders and running is because I think that every human is craving for this state of flow yeah so regardless of people that are really like because I've got some friends that are just like oh you do that meditation shit or you do yoga which is just till today they're like it's just stretching it's just stretching <laughs> I'm just like okay there's like a bit more of an ancient thing but never mind um but I think because most people are seeking a state of flow, because even if you live in your mind, and we've all met people who are kind of much more sort of, you know, they want to kind of operate from that place more and and are kind of locked into that. I've been reading this book about flow, 
and there's certain activities like rock climbing or swimming or whatever it is, but it tends to be a combination of some kind of physical thing where your mind has to oscillate between thought and action to do the thing Yeah. that creates this state flow where people actually get that sense of peace, which they would be if they were meditating or doing something else, right, or focusing on it. And it's so they can achieve that through the activity and that would be why they love going and doing golf or that would be why they love doing tennis or whatever is because it creates this same kind of flow feeling where like they disrupt constantly thinking about work and you know <clears throat> just operating all of the time and and like whether or not you're conscious of it that you're 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 working on your mind in a different way or you're putting your mind in a different state is maybe a better way of putting it rather than what it does all the time if you are a meditator and you realize which is like jump about just throwing fucking thoughts and reacting to stuff and being way more out of control than we realize like um i think there's ways that people are just naturally drawn to trying to deal with that yeah yeah trying to take control over them themselves in some way it's really interesting because i'm simultaneously agreeing with you on the kind of the the flow state and the discipline state and i've made this analogy between the exercise of the mind and the exercise of the body and at the same time i think there is there are a couple of different things that get called meditation mm, okay. and they are different different mental practices in that they're all basically almost all things that are pure mental discipline get called meditation other than maybe maths. <laughs> um, yeah. But I feel like there are sort of certainly it's worth making a distinction between the kind of meditation that is this relaxate relaxation meditation which is a, a flow state meditation and the kind of meditation that is the kind that I grew up with which is a very specific like it's about discipline and one-pointedness you of mind. You have a Buddhist upbringing right yeah so yeah you're talking about specific stuff but so maybe I'm yeah my language there I probably need to watch that because I didn't mean like that those things are a meditation but maybe like they're meditative they are, yeah so this is what I mean. Do you know what I, I mean? Like the, yeah yeah. I, I don't think that yeah. you're necessarily confused between the different kinds of things but I think we don't have good vocab for making the distinctions within that broad yeah, yeah, yeah. broad kind of church of things that are of the mind meditative that are focusing the mind in one way or another but there is a big difference between for example uh rock climbing or floating in the ocean which is a relaxation thing or walking along a tightrope in a kind of a focused careful way they're different methods and i guess uh, maybe i don't know why it's important to me to make those distinctions but i i think i'm always I'm always interested in where our vocabulary falls short. Yeah, I think mindfulness is a tricky one. I've heard so many people talking about it recently, and, like, I do just think... I understand, like, why... There's just always a bit of a tension around the way that the the West reframes stuff and, and uses language to get kind of, like, everyday people into stuff. And I love the, the, the mass kind of sharing of ancient practices and other stuff but I have found in general like I remember being in this gym once and I heard these two guys and they were just kind of like oh it was a bit woo woo and I just sort of didn't like this bit but I liked that bit and I was just like you're just extracting all the ancient bits that belong to people of colour <laughs> <laughs> and you're just taking the bits that you like for now and then it's like is that okay and why does that bother me and then I'm just like well our minds are pretty ingrained in our belief systems as well aren't they so if that's a way for them to access well, he's yoga, a- but without feeling threatened because it challenges their belief systems around certain kinds of things or a culture. I guess maybe it's to do with honouring 
Well, yeah, so this is a question. I think there's the two different something. things there that are at play. One is a slightly more political thing, so we'll do deal with that second. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. first one, and the yeah. one that I feel more entitled to talk about, yeah. is that one of the things that bothers me about that when people will say, oh, I want to do this part of uh, an ancient, let's say an ancient practice or whatever it happens to be, but not that part, is the Dunning-Kruger effect. You think you know what's going to be useful about something yes, before you go into yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there are, there may be, there may very well be things about it that reveal themselves to you if you practice them. So one, a good example, if we're going to do like exercise analogies, is when I was running a lot, mm. we would do core stability sessions. So a lot of kind of Pilates stuff. And for people who are running, that's really active, that's really driven, you're sweating, you're, you know, it's an intense thing. And lying down and trying to figure out like which tiny muscles in your stomach are your stabilizers and balancing on one foot for a little while feels useless. It feels like a waste of your time that you could be doing running sprints. But in reality, if you do the core stability exercises, you are so much less likely to get injured. Yeah, yeah. And it reveals itself to you after doing it for like four or five months of what seems to be a waste of time. So if you go into that and you look at the running and you're like, this bit feels good, that bit seems a bit woo, why should I bother doing the core stability thing? Six months down the line, you're going to sprain your ankle. And so, for example, if you believe in the kind of spiritual side of yoga and I'm not sure where I stand on that, but if you if you really buy into the full package of yoga, yeah. you're dealing with some pretty intense kind of spiritual forces. You're like at high levels, you're like inviting different gods into your body and all of that yeah, shit. Yeah, and to yeah. treat that in a flippant way and just be like, I'm just going to do the stretching bits and say the chanting things. Like yeah. potentially if you do buy into that, that's dangerous. Like you're, you're, you're dealing with forces that you don't understand. Yeah, it's really layered, isn't it? And I don't know what the kind of, like, equivalent is of me sort of extracting bits of other stuff that I... But I I think it is something that we all do, and it is something that has, like... When yeah. things travel and they become repackaged and other stuff and people... You, you can't really control the way that people perceive something as well because if they feel that way about kind of chanting and it's really uncomfortable for them, it might take them a while to understand. But, like, you know, a lot of that is just about, like, a lot of the chanting is also about breathe, Like, it's about getting you to do specific breathing yeah, stuff. Yeah, which is the core like, stability which part is, of Which it. is kind of like these kind of elements of just feeling this stuff. And, then, and you can also interpret things about kind of... Um, gods or other stuff for me I kind of do tend to because I'm I am an atheist translate transmute things more into energies and forces mm. yeah well, well and elemental things that have different names or other kinds of stuff rather than you know well you don't have to be a theist to believe that there are things in the world that we don't have good senses for maybe like we have five senses and so we can understand sort of five different uh, doors to reality. We can understand what something smells like or what something looks like or what something sounds like yeah. or what something feels like. And at the same time, it seems to me that there are other... Like, we don't... We can't really feel magnetism with our bodies. But we know there are magnetic forces because we can measure them with other tools. Yeah. There may be other things that that exist that we don't have good measurement capacity for, that we don't have good microscopes for, that you could... And, again, I don't know. 
I still think I'm wrong as well. See, I'm an I'm an atheist that's like recently like I think I'm settling on atheist, but to be honest, my beliefs You're change. My, yeah, my, they change a lot, and I still think, oh, I could be wrong. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And that's the thing that maybe got me about this kind of conversation with these things. Is I was just like, are there situations where you still think that like that could be true someone else's version of reality or that your your version of like i'm choosing to believe this yeah but actually i don't know like and there could be something else like also with with like yoga it could be something like there are two well many options but there are two kind of main (laughs) options one is they're wrong they're just stretching and making themselves feel good by doing chanting and envisioning forces that don't exist yeah Uh, there's another possibility which is that through the practice they are refining a capacity to sense a reality that exists but is difficult to access without that practice. Mm. Uh, There's a third potential option, which is that they are doing that and they're accessing forces that exist and then that's a really terrible thing to do and no one should know about these forces because they're too big for us to understand or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, originally, when I was in India doing yoga teacher training, you find out very disappointingly that a lot of it was just, like, um, mountain men trying to preserve their sperm or something, like, stabbing <laughs> on their head. And then you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you know. But I think what I find interesting is, like, the Western perspective, like, it, it, it tends to be, and I think maybe this is where, you know, that, that is the political issue and that's maybe what I'm getting, like, emotionally riled by is that it tends to be because uh, I went traveling in Brazil as well and they've got like Santa Daime and all of this other kind of cultural stuff and I that it tends to be indigenous cultures and practices and rituals that are viewed with a gaze of skepticism and um woo-woo and derogatory language mm-hmm. rather than respecting those kind of things it's like oh we've evolved now and we've got this narrative and this kind of science that rather than being like what were they trying to access and looking at it with a lens of more kind of um, maybe respect and understanding or kind of what what, what that was is. what explanatory power did this system have because what, it's was not it like we're not fucking act? up now with with western medical science like you're just trying stuff out and like failing and killing people and doing the wrong drugs it's like it's not like if there was like comparatively like a finite concrete thing but even science has its limitations and its failings there's there's this slightly kind of uh, two-faced element to that as well because if an indigenous practice was a methodology for understanding the world rather than a textbook for understanding the world if you you know what I mean if it's a practice that is a developing and growing practice, there's this, like, desire to preserve it untouched, which could prevent it from moving forward. It's It can't really grow organically anymore once it's come in contact with Western uh, thinking or Western science or Western medicine. Mm. And so then are you keeping it as a kind of a historical museum piece or are you allowing the two practices to integrate with the understanding that the West at the moment is so dominant and overriding that it will steamroll that old culture and therefore kind of put an end to whatever path it was potentially exploring or whatever knowledge it was potentially seeking or whatever lens of looking at the world was useful to those people to kind of go, you don't need that anymore, we have science, seems to... The, the, and then you kind of it just freezes it in in its tracks. It doesn't allow it to develop anymore. 
but at the same time, if it can't develop anymore, is it still useful? Where do you go with that? Yeah, that's a big old wrestle. And I always just think about this, um, I think it's like an African word, I think it's called Sankara or something, and it's like lovely, it's like a picture of like this bird, and it's um, it's taking like an egg off its back, and then like putting it in a nest forward, and it talks about taking from the taking from the past to inform the future and I think there's something about that that kind of really resonates of this idea of like being able to look at the history of things and again I think we're getting back to like the idyllic uh, Greek schooling that we need to bring back <laughs> or we just sort of have conversations about stuff in the morning and then do a workout later on um, and but it's this idea of um, you know that we look at the history of something mm. And we, we, we honour that kind of history and understanding of it, but maybe put it more in the context of its time and then see how how it's it's relevant now moving forward, but still kind of maybe keeping a through line of, of, of honouring who the people were yeah, and what they were getting at and what they were trying to do and still kind of respecting that and lifting that up. And I think sometimes that's the thing that gets kind of... Um, lost or brushed aside and I think it's to do with a much larger problem that we can't get into on this which is the dehumanization of that yeah. <laughs> I mean, certain groups of people but then there's also you know, you know but then there's also kind of a modernist perspective of okay so we have I think people don't really think about the values that they have now and where do you you know where does respect stop and and you have to go, well, they didn't treat women very well in those days. Nor did we, nor did anyone, but that's a thing that we can't respect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I remember talking to Tiff Stevenson about this, about, uh, and she has a comparatively controversial view, so it's not great of me to relate it, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know Tiff, uh, yeah, if you're Tiff's, listening to this. Tiff's great. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about the wearing of Native American headdresses at mm. um, music festivals, <laughs> yeah. which is offensive to Native American people. But one of the reasons that it's offensive to Native American people is that women shouldn't wear those hats. And so, okay, I want to respect the culture, I don't want to offend somebody, mm-hmm. but at the same time, in a modern world, yeah. I, don't feel, I don't feel bad about offending someone who doesn't think women should wear a hat. <laughs> you know what I mean? If, if, if somebody comes up to me and says, how dare you wear that hat, yeah, in the yeah. modern world, in the modern context, I'd be like, go fuck yourself I'm allowed to wear whatever hat I want yeah so where does that you know how do you have that conversation when you are part of the dominant paradigm or if you are being disrespectful and what what are you entitled to be disrespectful of where can you kind of say no my value is more important than your value or do I have to respect everybody's values? Because yeah, some people's values yeah. are shit. I think you've touched on the thing that I think I have been wrestling with the most at the moment. But it definitely, and it feels like a thing of our time. But it's this a meaty one. But it's like, and I was talking to my friend about it last night. Again, moral absolutism, which is just this like, I feel like people are being held to account in a very strong way of like, well, that's just right or that's just wrong. Mm. And obviously, in certain contexts where it's like, you know breaking the law and uh doing terrible things with people like yes it's just wrong but like in those kind of contexts which you're now being called out for on these other things where it's layered and like the belief systems and we're not able to seem to be able to look objectively at um and 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 rather than just kind of place this very strong social judgment 
look at the context and I think be able to pull apart some of these things and this is one of the things that I found particularly difficult because I think because I you know I I said this uh, I did all my like identity labels from the top about who I am and I think people expect me to be sort of like woke and all of this stuff but like you know I have a background and experience where it's like I'm still learning and figuring stuff out and I still feel very confused about race and stuff and I do think that I was raised by you know I was raised by a racist, you know, I was raised by a racist, like, you know, people with problematic views, but I don't think she's just a racist, no. you know, and, and it's way more complicated than that, and it's to do with timing, belief systems, things that are ingrained, and it's like, how much do you still, um, and, and maybe I feel particularly close to this, is because I love some people with some really problematic views. Well, yeah, and at the same time, you know, the way that the kind of hierarchy is falling out on the kind of internet justice bandwagon is that you must be an expert because you are a working class woman of color or come from a working class background and have that experience um i'm sort of reluctant to label you as anything but you that's certainly your history yeah yeah and then all of a sudden you're the expert so your opinion on something or your gut feeling on something or your reaction to something is taken as law Mm. or the rule or whatever Mm. it happens to be which seems weird to me. Yeah, and it definitely shouldn't be. <laughs> because I'm someone who wrestles a lot. And it's like, and that is always in flux. And like, this is what I love about, you know, um, uh, comedians that are still being out- outspoken and this kind of stuff of just like, you know, you shouldn't be held account to everything that you say. Because some of what you say is like, you're in the process of learning. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I found particularly interesting with kind of certain cultures and demographics and their attitudes towards sexuality. It's like, for me... I'm meant to be, because I'm a queer woman, like, completely outraged that, you know, um, a black guy from a certain time period in a certain context would have homophobic views. And I'm just like, no, that doesn't outrage me. Like, do, like... Yeah, the idea that someone should know better is always a bit confusing to me i'm just like have you ever spent time in in groups like that like in what way is it ever acceptable like it like do you are we having any compassion for the reality in certain groups of men that there's whole cultures about showing weakness and sexuality and there's huge amounts of fear in that so of course like certain language was used or things were said and i saw that at school of kind of using those kind of things like the right people with the right learning will kind of grow towards that and then give themselves you know the time and space to realize that maybe that that's like yeah but there's no point in human history that we have ever had a truly equal society of say more than <laughs> i'm sure there are exceptions let's say of more than 30 people been hierarchies. there's always been prejudice there's always been bigotry there's always been xenophobia or in-group out-group stuff if we decide as a society that we want to move towards a society where everyone is equal that is an enormous task like it's a yeah. and everyone has to understand it as as an enormous task worthy of energy i don't understand people who are impatient with that process yes i understand being passionate about that process and invested in that process yes. but impatient but also i feel a fear like i even just then when i said that when i said i didn't feel outraged by that and i don't i wasn't shocked by that and in no way did it like you know affect me or do those kind of things because I feel a fear like even in those communities that are that are that are doing that because if you say that it's like well you're not fighting hard enough you don't care you're apathetic or I'm somehow excusing that thing it's like I don't excuse any of that stuff excusing slash then enabled slash then somehow 
uh, not just enabling but but encouraging it's completely possible for me to feel um to feel like that is you know I just don't think that I'm the person that gets to say that that is wrong or right and I tend to look at things more or I'm trying to look at things more from a perspective of like the context and maybe I have the luxury of that because I've grown up on the ley lines of these things and I've seen that I've seen the pain of people that make a make a cultural assumption I know where beliefs come from because I've been surrounded by someone who was indoctrinated and believed something I can see now that like you know we all are socialized to believe certain things as well there's cultures there's our timing it can be fearful to like think other stuff you know um so I think it's like meeting it with some level of compassion of like you know is this person really in is their intent harm and hateful or are they um <clears throat> responding and reacting to a culture yeah. that has this fear and hatred of something you know so, and it's being able to distinguish the two and well, have some kind of trying to unpack your gut feelings yeah. is really difficult i think a good example and this is uh, maybe a bit too controversial to get into this late in the podcast <laughs> yes, but it yeah. is something that i want to think about and talk about more is that there is rape statistics mm. so like it just in terms of of thinking about where you stand and what you believe and what you understand there is a certain proportion of reports that are made to the police that are provably false, falsifiable, right? So that there's a certain proportion of women who lie. Whether you believe that that proportion is tiny, because there's a range of different statistics. I think it ranges from about 4% to about 17%, depending on the study. Yeah. So that's quite a wide range of you know, either that's a vanishingly small number of women who would lie or it's quite a large number of women who would lie. Whether someone believes that it's the 4% or whether they believe it's the 17% has nothing to do with critical faculties. <laughs> they will... They just decide on how they feel, whether they've known people who've been victims or whether they've known people who've been yeah, falsely yeah, accused yeah. or how they feel, what team they feel allied with. So, so there were teams. Layers to it, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then beyond that, of the number that are reported that are provably falsifiable, you have no idea, you know, how many other people are not reporting. There's a huge number of, of victims, men and women, of yeah. assault and abuse who don't report. Everybody knows that. That's a fact. Yeah. Are you more likely to report if you're lying or are you more likely to report if you're telling the truth? You know, because you might not want to report if you're telling the truth because it's too traumatic or you feel guilty. Well, no, because there is a narrative that, you know, you will, that there are lies. Yeah. <laughs> but you then feel that you're disbelieved, which then kind of, so I, that so perpetuates more, like, yeah. the cycle, doesn't it, in some sense. And I'm sure if you disempower people and there is a narrative, like, like but, with anything, it's kind of like benefit fraud or anything else, isn't it? It's like most people don't want to live with that thing, but there will always be people that will exploit. Yeah. So, um, but then, then so we, we, we have too, an unknown number of of actual victims, yeah. Yeah. of which an unknown proportion are reporting, and we don't know whether you're more likely to report if you are a real victim or if you're trying to cause trouble and are not a victim at all. Yeah, yeah. Which means that nobody actually knows. We don't have the numbers. And yet you have people having these, like, violent, ang angry arguments yeah, with yeah. other people yeah. because they know somebody or they feel this way or there's, there's a there's yeah. a you know, obviously you want an outcome or you want protection or you want someone to take you seriously. There's so many vested interests there. Yeah. But and the it also data all is yeah, it, it all ties shit. Into, yeah, and it all ties into a really strong sort of 
gender wars narrative yeah. and whether you're fe- feminist or anti-feminist, whether you feel threatened by, by you know, kind of masculinity and this kind of, you know, patriarchy backlash and all of this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it does tend to come from these kind of... Um, gut places and reaction places rather than the stuff and then you, yeah when you do the research you realise oh no one's really investing in actually yeah nobody knows <laughs> qualifying this stuff um, people are having with more things violent angry breaking up families and, and, and I've friendships I've heard quite a few comedians do bits about kind of just like oh Oh, like believe all women? Are you insane? Da, 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 da. And then I'm just like, what? Like, but none of them really talk about like the percentage. And it's yeah. like, of course, yeah. Like you saying that, like I don't think anyone thinks that women don't lie. No, like, but at the same like, time, you know. And then there's this argument again against that kind but of. But like, that's not what that was about. Is, but like, <laughs> I, yeah, get it, I get why it. Why should we be focusing on the very small number of women who are liars when there are so many, or again, men as well? But when there are so many victims who are not lying. Yeah. But again, we don't know how many victims they are. We don't don't know how many victims are coming forward and we don't know what proportion of those victims are lying or telling the truth unless they're reporting it and we don't know like you know what I mean like that's the big thing the the thing that turned my head inside out was I actually don't know if you are more likely to go to the police if you're lying yeah or if you're more likely to go to the police if you're telling the truth yeah man that is a because you know all the arguments right yeah. If you're lying, you don't want to be found out in a lie, so you don't want to risk an investigation. But at the same time, if you're a real victim, you don't want to be traumatised, you don't want to be disbelieved, you don't want to... You often don't want to make a fuss. Sometimes it's a messy situation where you don't think that you'll come out looking golden, but yeah. you are still a victim. So actually, how do we know? If somebody in the street tells you that they are a victim of assault... Yeah. Do you, like, there's no measure, unless you know them personally, you have no sense of how likely they are to be telling the truth. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's, like, a terrifying thing. Um, I think in the context of stuff, like, with with some people that have come forward in certain cases recently, I've just felt, like, so incredibly bowled over by the courage of that because I do think yeah. that like you know in, in I think in particular like the Cosby case and stuff because it was just kind of like when when so much time has passed everything's been stacked against you and you do just think like you know there's so much more on the line so yeah. for me I would make a balanced judgment based on the fact of like you're standing against something that is like is really going to fuck you yeah. and I would only imagine that you would do that if you really really wanted to make impact because something terrible had happened and you valued that not happening again yeah and so you know you wait it on those kind of things and I do think that like the, you know there was the well, recent we, case of the British the with, British with woman high abroad, profile people kind of then it becomes you've got different factors at play yeah if it's if it's just normal people in normal society it's a different equation but certainly I think you know you're less likely to make an accusation against a person of a lot of power if you're lying I think that's unlikely that you'd lie but at the same time you know, J.K. Rowling wasn't allowed to touch envelopes when she was doing book signing tours in case somebody claimed that, you know, had written some fan fiction in there and claimed that she'd nicked their idea if she ever had an, a similar idea. Yeah. And also, there I've are. worked with kids, and kids do lie. Like, they will say that, like, to the straight, like, do you know, like, we are liars. Like, I do think there is a thing of, like, protecting ourselves. Also, if you have a really strong narrative of, like, you know that saying a teacher hit you would be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. 
and that they would get bollocked and that this would kind of solve a problem because we've all done like I think as kids like a lot of people have done it where you're just like my sister hit me (laughs) do you know what I mean like I do think that there is a space for that too I do think it probably is more minimal because it gets found out and then you're embarrassed and you're humiliated and it's an idiotic thing like I think in general like it's probably weighted more on stuff. That would be my yeah. belief and assumption from the information that I have. I don't know how accurate that can be. And I do think that it all, again, comes back to, like, you know, if we have better sex education... Because there was that recent um, one, wasn't there, with the British woman who was travelling and other stuff. And there was kind of all this murkiness about whether or not she got into a group sex thing and then hated it and then said that it was something else that it wasn't or whatever. I don't know enough of all of the information because the papers that you read are so fucking sensationalised <laughs> yeah, and extreme. Yeah, yeah. There's no balance there. So I'd be reluctant to say anything, but I would say that, like, I think if we are educating people to be clearer about it I mean it's again it's complex because you know I know that being clearer and definitive about stuff isn't always the sexiest thing in the world but in you know in the in terms of like it needs to happen of like being Certainly. able to negotiate stuff and being clear about what you want because I know so many people that we've started to talk about our sex lives to each other more and like how many times so many of us were just like just sort of going along with things because it was kind of like well that's what you do and it's passion and excitement and we had no idea that you could like you know um set boundaries or dictate it or steer it more or like you know like have more autonomy Put the brakes on you know yeah and like do which it, set of train tracks you're being do it in a different way like mm. because actually it's all just like sort of impulsive i can't even imagine my poor fucking mum's generation of just like when there was the, when it was so shtum and then it's like you know you have to commit your whole life to someone before you fuck them really in a social sense so it's just like that's like a fucking nightmare if you're like oh my god this is not working yeah <laughs> you know so I think it's evolving, but, like, yeah, I think if we work at some of the roots of stuff, then it might help us. And then also, yeah, more investment into, like, investigating things. Because it's similar, like, when you read about stuff in relation to abortions or other things, and you're just like, well, where is all the money in the research? And then... Certainly, like, resources into investigating accusations, Yeah, I think, would solve kind of both sides of this particular social problem. Yeah. The social problem of the accusation tarnishing a man's reputation. If you could guarantee that any time an accusation was made, there would be a serious investigation yeah. and at, with some sort of conclusive outcome, then there would be a disincentive to false reporting. Yeah. You know, if you believe that there are women and men who are making false reports in order to ruin other people's reputations, then the investigation process would make that less likely. And at the same time, it, if every accusation was met with a serious investigation, it would make bad behaviour disincentivized. People would be yeah less likely to get but away with it. Also, the media needs to take responsibility because until that stuff has been proven, what they do is these massive smear campaigns where, like, yeah, people, figures that can be in the public eye sometimes or even not, but, like massively like it's very hard to change people's perception again once they've seen all this stuff about you and it, if it hangs as a question mark yeah you're, you're marred with that yeah. then you know and I have heard about cases on the other side of like women you know um I think this was a recent one but like yeah like a a, a woman kind of you know um you know hitting on a on, on a young guy and you know whilst uh, at like a big arts festival and just kind of being like if he said anything then this was going to happen or whatever or do you know what I mean and then like him having to like leave yeah that was in our industry actually yeah. yes yeah so I have across the board but again it's just this kind of like 
the facts and like, I do find it nuts that like because I, I you know you see these kind of documentaries now on on that kind of media like hive of stuff of just kind of wrapping around these people and creating like a whole story of of stuff before it's even gone to trial sometimes and then you're just like so the public have already decided that you're a terrible sex offender or not and then it's like so the stakes are all kind of layered into and feed into people's arguments well, yeah it's a reaction against the fact that there's a system that doesn't work a system mm-hmm. of checks and balances that is not seen as reliable so you yeah. think well I have to get justice through this other medium through the media but there's a reason yeah. that there's a system and there's a reason that we have the law there's a reason that there's an investigation process yeah. that is what needs to be improved so that people can trust it and rely on it, and so that you can... If you can rely on the law to prove at least a large proportion of guilty people guilty and let a large proportion of innocent people go free, if you can believe that, then you can say innocent until proven guilty. If you can't trust the system, then you end up with this really nasty vigilante justice. But it is also a byproduct of, yeah, because you just touched on something that I'd just forgotten that I considered. It's because a friend of mine was going through a really difficult situation with kind of custody and stuff and, like, had a really misogynistic judge that was just really, like, just totally favoured on the father's side. Like, so they can't, because there are... And at the same time, I know fathers who've had their children taken away from them because... Exactly. Because we're not balanced, and this is, again, the moral thing of just kind of, like, you know, it is people, yeah. <laughs> like, making these decisions. And they come with belief systems, indoctrinations, and, and and bias, right? So it's kind of, like, how do we find a way in which to to balance that out? Because women have been disbelieved so much, you can totally understand, to some degree, like, all of this rage around, like, it's not going to happen, and because they're this big Why should I even bother? Just, I'm going to do this my own way. Yeah, and everybody rallying around and being like, this person is terrible, we have to believe this person, going all of that comes from that emotional place, right, of this fear. And because this every big high-profile public version, you know, there's, you know a thousand people who haven't had that big high-profile thing, so the one person who's in public being accused of the thing that you know other people have gotten away from, they become the proxy for every man who's yeah. ever misbehaved and gotten away from it. Like, I do feel, we should draw this to a close, but I yes, do yeah, feel yeah. sorry, I do feel kind of sorry for this generation of creeps. Because <laughs> it's like, why? Obviously, because you know, I, I'm not saying that I, I think that they should be excused or that I think I think they should be held accountable for their behaviour. But it's like if you got away with um, stealing ten dollars from your parents' wallet every month for the yeah. last ten years, and all of a sudden they arrest you. Yeah, but this is the backlash. I find it funny. Like, for me, I still... I mean, it's not funny in the context of what happens, but, I mean, I find it funny the response that's happening. Like, I mean, come on. Prince Andrew in the interview was just like, well, back then there wasn't any social media. It's, like, essentially saying... Yeah. I I could just go to parties with teenagers and and it was fine. Yeah. And, like, no one said anything. So that's why I feel sorry for them. Like, I'm not saying that they... I'm not saying that what what has been done in the past was in any way excusable. But I do sort of feel sorry for them because it's like you were getting away with murder and now all of a sudden you're not anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Without minimising the terribleness of their actions, it's still a bit sad for them. (laughs) It's a bit sad, yeah. Like, what next? How do you do it? Yeah. Well, I got to treat people like shit for hundreds of years. No, and, and, and I, I don't think that it's going to go away. I suppose I'm probably fascinated and, and fearful of like how it's going to manifest now in such a vigilante culture. Is it going to kind of become like some kind of extreme underground thing? Because like you said, I don't think people are going to stop fucking up and doing these 
kind of things, it's not like that can all be solved. I guess it's like how we manage it. Better, yeah. But yeah. Anyway, this has been, <laughs> this has been like a roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you online, Charlie George? Um, I am on Instagram at Charlie George Comedy, and I am on Twitter at CG Does Comedy. Um, and I have a website and all of that kind of jazz. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be better at social media, but it may just be pictures of dogs I like. Yeah, that's allowed. That's good at social media. That seems good enough <laughs> to me. Uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. Yeah, thanks for having me.